you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Today we're going to be working from verse 34 through the end of the first chapter. At the start of the summer, our family had a stomach virus work its way through our entire house. And, and normally when I get hit with the stomach bug, I'm usually able to shake it in 24 hours. I can drink Gatorade, eat some saltine crackers, and to take a day off from work and, and live to fight another day. But in this particular case, our children brought home some sort of demon strand from preschool, and I could not shake it. I was sick on a Monday, and I felt better on Tuesday, which seemed like normal operating procedure, and so I traded places with Lacey, who picked up the bug, and she went into quarantine, and I took care of the kids, and but then it came back on Wednesday, and it came back again on Saturday, and again on the following Thursday, and again on the following Tuesday. And while I was certainly enjoying the results of my crash diet, I would not recommend it as a sustainable and healthy weight loss plan. I was miserable. I was struggling. It got so bad that after a while, I finally gave in and did something I rarely do. I made a doctor's appointment. And after a few trips back and forth to the doctor, they were struggling to uncover the reason for my symptoms, my prolonged symptoms. And so after a few weeks and after running a variety of tests, they still hadn't been able to quite pinpoint the problem. And on my last visit, as my doctor was preparing to schedule an endoscopy, she sort of said in passing, you know, you could have acid reflux. You could try taking something over the counter for it next time you're nauseated. So when I got home, I was working to, to relay all the information to Lacey like I do after every doctor's appointment. I'm trying to give her all the bullet points of exactly what the doctor said. And as I'm debriefing her on my appointment, I told her about that last statement that the doctor made. And Lacey said, I can't believe I didn't think about it, but you could definitely have acid reflux. I had terrible acid reflux and I was pregnant with trip, and I took Zantac 150 for relief. You should definitely try it. And so I immediately started working to find some Zantac 150 because I trust her endorsement. And she was absolutely right. Since I started taking Zantac after a spicy meal or eating tomato sauce or anything like that that, that causes acid reflux to flare up, I've been fine. And you know, and if a reality star endorsed Zantac 150 as a paid promotion on their social media account, it wouldn't matter to me. And if a retired pro athlete endorsed Zantac 150 on a commercial, it wouldn't move the needle very much, but when my wife speaks from personal experience about the benefits of using Zantac 150 for fighting acid reflux, I'm sold. I'm all in. Because of her endorsement, I'm all in. Her endorsement carries weight. Her endorsement means a lot. And so today, as we see Jesus enter the public square, we find four men who are willing to offer compelling arguments on his behalf. They're not celebrities. They're not paid spokesmen. They are four ordinary men who share their extraordinary experiences with Jesus. So let's start reading at verse 35 of chapter 1. It says, The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So first, we see John the Baptist endorsed Jesus to his followers. John the Baptist never strayed from his sole purpose. He has come to prepare the way for the Messiah. He has come to prepare hearts of men and women to follow Jesus. And once Jesus arrives on the scene, he kindly steps out of the way. 
And we talked about last week how uh, in chapter 3, John describes his relationship with Jesus to his followers. And he says that, that Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. See, John understood that Jesus must be upgraded, even though it meant he would be downgraded. Jesus must be elevated, even though it meant he will be dropped. Jesus must, be, must become bigger, even though it meant he would become smaller. And so when Jesus comes, John's first order business is to point his followers in his direction. He willingly passes on his disciples to Jesus. He says, look, there's the Lamb of God. Why don't y'all check him out? Why don't you see what he has to say? Why don't you follow him? See, John was so confident in God's plan that he was willing to make personal sacrifice for it. He was willing to watch his numbers dwindle. He was willing to watch his influence vanish. He was willing to watch his followers leave because he knew his loss would be the kingdom's gain. You know, a few years ago, J.D. Greer, who currently serves as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and pastor of the Summit Church in North Carolina, he wrote a book called Gaining by Losing, Why the Future Belongs to Churches that Sinned, where he describes his experiences pastoring a sending church. And over the last decade or so, Summit has sent many church members to plant churches nationally and internationally. And for the first time in 2017, their combined average attendance at their home church was surpassed by their combined average attendance of their church plants. In 2017, they had an average of 9,973 gathering in Raleigh-Durham, and they had an average of 10,171 gathering in churches all over our country and all over the globe. And Greer argues that when Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission, he revealed that the key for reaching the world with the gospel is found in sending, not gathering. Many churches focus time and energy on attracting visitors and counting numbers, but the real mission of the church is not how many people you can gather, it's about how many you can train up and send out. The true measure of success for a church should be its sending capacity, not its seating capacity. We must ask ourselves whether we are more concerned with building our kingdom or God's. And I love that next to last line, that the goal of the church should be to build up its sending capacity, not its seating capacity. Now understand what we're saying. We, we certainly want to grow at charity. We want to fill empty pews in Sunday school rooms. We want to hear children laughing in the hallways. We want to see students connecting with one another and connecting to Christ. And we want to see adults finding places to serve and be served. But in pursuit of these things, we cannot lose sight of our primary purpose. We cannot lose sight of the fact that we have been commissioned first by God to share the good news. That we are called to spread the gospel, to build God's kingdom and not our own. And in John the Baptist, we consistently see a genuine model for this. We see a consistent model of a servant of God. You know, and we, we often wrestle with the human desire to make a name for ourselves or attach our name to people or institutions so we'll be remembered. But John didn't care about any of that. John didn't care about the recognition. John didn't care about the credit. He didn't care if he would be remembered or forgotten. He only cared about making Jesus Christ known. And so when John makes his endorsement to two of his disciples and they see that he's willing to give up his influence and authority to testify about Jesus, they follow Jesus immediately. Let's pick back up in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? 
And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So second, we see Andrew endorse Jesus to his brother. Andrew was one of the two followers of John the Baptist. According to verse 40, and, and, and starting in verse 37, he starts to follow Jesus. They were listening to John teach. You know, there weren't universities in this day. And so Andrew and the other disciples, they, they looked for someone they could latch themselves onto, someone they could follow, someone that would disciple them, someone that they could see the way they lived their life and sit under their teaching. That was sort of the college experience in the first century. And so he'd been following John the Baptist, and then on one day as he's sitting under John's teaching, he, he hears John stop and proclaim, Behold, there's the Lamb of God. There he is, in the flesh, there's the Lamb of God, there's the one that we've been waiting for. And based on John's endorsement, Andrew and the other disciple immediately start following Jesus. And Jesus quickly notices the footsteps behind him, and he stops and asks in verse 38, What are you seeking? And they sort of sidestep his question and ask, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now this is important. They're asking about Jesus' lodging accommodations because they're planning to go with him. They're essentially asking, where are you heading? What are, what's on the agenda? What are we doing today? Should we pack a suitcase? You know, do we need swimming trunks? Do we need supplies? What, what does the rest of your week look like? You know, we're team Jesus now. We, need, we are prepared for the coming adventure. We want to follow you. We want to talk to you. We want to learn from you. Wherever you go, we go. And Jesus simply responds in verse 39, Come and you will see. So they went and they saw where Jesus was staying and they spent the rest of the afternoon talking with him. We don't know any details about their conversation, but we can see the immediate impact their conversation had on Andrew. Because Andrew's first order of business is sharing his experience with his brother. Coincidentally, my first gospel conversation after conversion was with my brother too. When I was saved by grace, I turned my attention to my younger brother Tarver. I had a, a deep concern about his eternal state. I was burdened about all the sin and shame in his life, and I decided that I would take it upon myself to have a gospel conversation with him. And while my zeal for sharing the good news was certainly comparable to Andrew's, I was far less successful, mostly because I was eight and Tarver was only four. It became such a problem that at one point my mom had to tell me to chill out. Chill out, son. Your brother's four years old. He's, he has time. Time is on his side. He's going to figure this thing out. And you'll be glad to know that, that one day he did. But Andrew seeks out his brother. When he finds him in verse 41, he declares, We have found the Messiah. Andrew has been diligently searching and patiently waiting, and now he has found the Messiah. And I love Andrew's use of the word found the way it draws a direct parallel to a couple parables of Jesus in Matthew. In one parable, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. 
Or in another parable, Jesus describes a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to find the one that's missing. He says, if the shepherd finds one, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than the 99 that did not go astray. And so Andrew comes running to his brother with the joy of a man who's found treasure and the excitement of a shepherd who's found his lost sheep. And because of Andrew's overwhelming endorsement for Jesus, his brother went to meet with Jesus. And when Jesus met him, he tells him in verse 42, You are Simon, son of John. You shall now be called Peter. Now the changing of Simon's name to Peter would foreshadow his role in the explosion of the early church. And when God changes a person's name in the Old Testament, it had significant implications about their future. You know, God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Jacob to Israel, and now Jesus is changing Simon's name to Peter, which means rock. However, for the next three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter would be anything but the rock of the Jesus movement. Peter certainly would have his high points over the next three years, but he would also have some startling low points. He'd have these moments of little faith, these moments where he'd prove to be short-tempered and impulsive, the moment that he would deny Christ three times during his trial, and the moment that he would run and hide as Jesus was journeying to the cross. But after Christ's resurrection... When Peter became empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, he became a dynamic gospel preacher. He was a leading figure in the early church. He helped turn the world on its head for the gospel. And of course, in the moment, in our text, Andrew has no idea about his brother's future ministry. He has no idea what God is going to do through Peter when he shares the good news with him. He simply loves his brother, and he wants his brother to meet Jesus. He had no clue how God would ultimately use Peter to change the world. But Jesus knew the future. And I love that Jesus doesn't call Peter the rock because of his present. He calls him the rock because of his future. He goes ahead and gives him the name because he knows where he's heading. And this is one of the exciting aspects about sharing the gospel with others in the present is watching how God will leverage their lives for the gospel in the future. We can't predict the outcome. We don't know the results, but God knows every detail of their future ministry, and we get to sit on the sidelines and watch with great joy as it unfolds. You know, I can say, after working for four years in student ministry, I find unspeakable joy in watching former students run wild in the kingdom of God. When I see a student go on a mission trip with their BCM group or serve at a church plant near their college campus, or work as a summer staffer at a youth camp, I praise God that I had the opportunity and the privilege to be a small part of their story. I'm grateful to be a a bullet point or a footnote in their biography. And I love sitting back and, and watching their stories unfold. And Andrew surely had a similar experience with Peter. He surely had the same delight in watching his brother powerfully proclaim the gospel. So John the Baptist endorses Jesus to Andrew. And Andrew endorses Jesus to Peter. And then Peter will ultimately endorse Jesus to most of the Roman Empire. Then the text skips ahead to the next day. Let's pick back up in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. 
he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Third, we see Philip endorse Jesus to his friend. Philip went straight to a friend just as Andrew went straight to his brother. And John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God, and Andrew understood that Jesus was the Messiah, and Philip recognized Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of God. We, we don't get any details again in the conversation between Philip and Jesus. There may have been more words exchanged, but there obviously wasn't a detailed conversation here. Basically, we have Jesus extending his hand in love and Philip grabbing it. Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me, and Philip drops what he's doing and follows Jesus. So we don't know details about the conversation, but again, we can see in Philip's words to Nathaniel that he has a full understanding of exactly who Jesus is. And he declares with excitement, we have found him. We have found the one who Moses wrote about. We have found the one who the prophets preached about. We have found the one who John the Baptist has been talking about. We found the Prince of Peace. We found the Suffering Servant. We found the Messiah. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He's the son of a carpenter named Joseph. But while Philip is completely convinced, Nathaniel isn't so sure. Look at his response in verse 46. He asks, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And in one question, Nathaniel reveals to us that at least he's an intellectual snob, and at worst he might even be a bigot. You know, his friend Philip comes to him and says, I want you to meet my new rabbi. I believe he's the Messiah. I think he has all the answers. I think he's finally the one who's come to make all things new. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel just couldn't get past Jesus' hometown. Surely God wouldn't rise up his Messiah from a backwater primitive town like Nazareth. You know, in Nathaniel's eyes, there were right people, there were suitable people, there were smart people, there were good people, and then there were those other people from Nazareth. Nathaniel was rolling his eyes at Philip's claims because he wants to appear capable and intelligent. You know, he's following this, this familiar human pattern to us of establishing superiority, not through respectful and diligent conversation, but through ridicule and disdain. And so he looks at his friend and says, you're telling me he's got the answers and he's from Nazareth? Uh, I don't think so, man. Are you serious? See, and this is important for us because many people today view Christianity like Nathaniel viewed Nazareth. Christianity was from Nazareth in Jesus' day and for some it's in Nazareth in our day. Skeptics love to roll their eyes at Christianity they love to discount who Jesus is and what he has done. You know, and the, the right people, the suited people, the smart people, they'll say, I've never been, you know, I, I, I've been there and done that. I grew up in the church. I moved on from it. I, I've, I've made up my mind. I don't need that anymore in my life. So Jesus is still in Nazareth for them. And I want you to understand, if you're skeptical about aspects of the Christian faith, if you have doubts about Jesus, 
it's okay. You don't have to... You don't have to have every answer. You don't have to understand every principle. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to explain to me how intricate parts of Leviticus fit into the gospel story. You don't have to be able to outline Isaiah. But you can't be dismissive like Nathaniel. You can't put God in a box. You can't confidently say what God can and can't ordain in your life. Because that level of dismissiveness can be deadly. It'll kill curiosity, creativity, and problem solving. It will fracture your relationship with God. It'll force you to become content with so much less than God has for you. In her marriage book, For Better, Tara Parker Pope cites eye-rolling as one of the definitive warning signs of trouble in a relationship. Marriage counselors look for it as a warning sign because it signifies contempt for the other person. See, a successful marriage can handle disappointment, disagreement, pain, frustration, anything that life throws at it, but it can't handle complete dismissal. It can't handle absolute contempt. So when you don't understand or when you have questions, allow those concerns to push you towards Christ, not away from Him. You can't be like Nathaniel. Nathaniel outright rebukes Philip for his mere suggestion that the Messiah may come from Nazareth. But then something interesting happens. Nathaniel makes this hard stance about Jesus, but then he follows Philip to go meet Jesus. He's still interested. One of my modern-day faith heroes is is Tim Keller. He's a brilliant preacher, writer, theologian, apologist. And in 1989, he ignored the advice of his friends and family, and he planted a church in the heart of Manhattan. He and his wife were told over and over again that New York City is post-Christian. New York City is full of some of the most ambitious and brilliant minds in the world, and they just won't come. They believe they know better. They look down on organized religion. They're far too enlightened for it. And today, 30 years later, Redeemer Presbyterian Church averages 5,000 in attendance. Because underneath the public assertions of skepticism, there's usually a lot of private soul-searching going on. You know, Philip asked the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But, I mean... Nathaniel asks the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Excuse me. And Philip simply responds, come and see, and he does. For all his bluster and dismissiveness, Nathaniel was participating in some undercover soul searching. He wanted to act like he didn't care about finding answers. He wanted to appear as though he had it all figured out. But like many others, he was surely struggling with his current position under Roman rule. He was searching for God's purpose. He was wrestling with big questions. He was going through a crisis. He was wondering, are we still God's people? Has God abandoned the Jews? Was Jesus really the Messiah? And because he didn't have suitable answers to these questions, he decided to go meet Jesus. And I am convinced to my core that that every skeptic, every cynic, every eye roller of Christianity has these moments has these moments of curiosity. How could they not? How could they truly live every second 
of every day at peace with complete unknown? How could they possibly find rest in believing that one day they'll just cease to exist? Nathaniel had plenty of doubts, but he was still curious. He still went to meet Jesus. And they meet in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Finally, Nathanael endorses Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus has to say two things to convince Nathanael of who he is. First, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus characterizes Nathanael as this transparent, straight-talking person. Someone who tells it like it is. Someone who's open and honest, but he's probably putting it rather nicely. Because based on our limited experience with Nathanael, we can estimate that he was probably abrasive and harsh with his words. He probably believed he was a person who, who speaks the truth in love, but usually speaks words that are absent of compassion. He was outspoken, he was rude, he stepped on people's toes, he was sarcastic. But Jesus was nonetheless gentle in his assessment of Nathaniel. He could see all the way to his core. He could see the doubts. He could see the questions. He could see the hardness of his heart. But he was still kind in his evaluation. And Nathaniel is taken aback by his insight in verse 48. And he asks, how do you know me? And Jesus makes a second statement. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We don't know when Nathaniel was under the fig tree. We don't know why he was under the fig tree. We don't know what he was doing under the fig tree. But we know that Jesus shocked Nathaniel in this moment. We know that Jesus shocked Nathaniel with his insight. He couldn't believe it. You know, and his activities under that tree were and still are private, but he is astounded that Jesus knew about it and still confirmed him. That Jesus saw him in a candid moment, possibly doing something unsavory, something that he shouldn't be doing, and Jesus still accepted him. And in these two statements, Jesus proves his divinity to Nathaniel. Only the Messiah would know him before meeting him. Only the Messiah would see him before meeting him. Only the Messiah would love him before meeting him. And so after these two simple statements, Nathaniel cries out, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In a moment, his skepticism is erased. His questions are answered. His doubts are removed. He is standing in the presence of his Savior from the little old town of Nazareth. And we see Nathaniel quickly move from skeptic to believer. And his transition occurs so fast that Jesus offers a gentle rebuke in verses 50 and 51. 
He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Really? That's all it took? He says, you will see greater things than these. Truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You can almost see Jesus smirking in his response. Oh man, you believe me because I, I knew a couple facts about you. Well, you better buckle your seatbelt. You better get ready to hold on tight. Because you're going to see so much more. Because Jesus would do so much more. He would break the divide between heaven and earth. He would defeat the evil and death on the cross. He would bring us back into the presence of a holy God. He would be so much more than a mere prophet from the small town of Nazareth. And when you commit yourself to pursuing Him, you'll always find much more than you're expecting, hoping, or dreaming. And so in 48 hours, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel moved from skeptics to believers. They believed Jesus was the Lamb of God, the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And they joined John the Baptist in giving their full endorsement of him. And I want to circle back to verse 38 for a minute. Because the question that Jesus asked in verse 38 is really the question that jumpstarts all of their journeys. It's the question that still confronts us today. And it's, it's the first words that Jesus says in the Gospel of John. He asks, what are you seeking? He looks at, at, at Andrew and the other disciple of John and says, what are you seeking in life? What are you looking for? And we'll never know the answers for Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. They could have been looking for some assurance. They may have wanted to know they were okay with God, that their, that their effort and sincerity was enough. They could have been seeking authority and prominence in the company of a powerful leader. They could have been looking for excitement of following a new political leader who may lead a rebellion against the establishment. They could have been hoping for an escape from the drudgery of their boring lives. They could have been seeking personal affirmation. They could have just wanted someone to say, you're okay. Or they could have been chasing a mystical religious experience, looking to discover a new feeling they've never felt before. You know, the answers are always different. The answers were different for the four of them. The answers are different for all of us. But the question is always the same. Jesus always starts with the same question. What are you seeking? And after the, after the question comes the invitation. Come and see. After John points his followers to Jesus, Jesus invites them to come and you will see. When Philip invites his friend to come to Christ, his words were, come and see. And after Nathaniel declares Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus promises his new disciples, you will see greater things than this. We're all looking for something. We're all seeking something. And Jesus invites us to come and see that in him we have everything we will ever need. The key phrase for today is come and see. Whether you are a hardened skeptic like Nathaniel or a faithful believer like John the Baptist, come and see. 
If you're skeptical about Jesus, come and see what He can do in you. Stop going through the motions. Stop playing church. Stop chasing worldly things. Stop dedicating your time, energy, and resources to idols who will leave you empty and broken. To things that will pass away. Instead, come and see Jesus. Come and experience the abundant life that only He can offer you. And and if you already trust in Jesus, come and see what He can do through you. When Andrew found Jesus, he immediately ran to his brother. When Philip found Jesus, he immediately ran to his friend. We've been asking this question for the last few weeks. Who is your one? Who is the one person in your life who doesn't know Jesus? Who is the one person in your life who doesn't go to church? Every believer has a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a gym partner, a fishing buddy who doesn't go to church, who doesn't follow Jesus. We all have our one. And we need to invite our one to come and see. Because I truly believe the words of John 12, 32, where Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Invite them to come and see the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And he'll do the rest. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you for the endorsements of these four men. We thank you for the examples of these four men. Lord, the the example of John the Baptist and and his humility and that he lived his life always hoping that he might decrease so Jesus would increase. Lord, in the examples of, of Philip and Andrew who immediately ran to people that were important to them to share the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the invitation. We thank you that you you made that first step in love. That you sent your son to the cross. That we were were separated from you in our sin and you sent Jesus who was perfectly righteous to the cross in our place so that we might have life through him. So that we might have a relationship with you through him. Lord, we're thankful for that first step. And that In doing that, Jesus invites us to come and see. To come and see what it would be like to walk in deeper relationship with Him. And Father, no matter where we are on the spectrum today, everyone everyone under the sound of my voice has something they need to do in the text today. If they've never placed their trust in Jesus, they need to come and see what He can do in them. And Lord, if they have placed their trust in Jesus, they need to come and see what he can do through them and start inviting others to come and see. Lord, give us the strength and the courage to participate in this work. Lord, we love you. We praise you. 
We thank you for Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.